I don't believe that liberalism by itself has the resources to be able to defend itself or to recapture what has been lost. This is a moment where it's extremely important for people to focus on the kinds of questions that conservatives ask. If something's going to be saved from this con conflagration, it, it's going to be saved using conservative tools, not liberal ones. Welcome to the Acton Line podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In this episode, Sam Gregg sits down with award-winning political theorist Yoram Hazoni to discuss Hazoni's new book, Conservatism, A Rediscovery. Hazoni argues that the idea that American conservatism is identical to classical liberalism is seriously mistaken. According to Hazoni, the best hope for Western democracy is a return to the empiricist, religious, and nationalist traditions of America and Britain. These conservative traditions brought greatness to the English-speaking nations and became the model for national freedom for the entire world. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Hello, my name is Sam Gregg, and I am the Director of Research at the Acton Institute. Welcome to this Acton Line podcast. It's my great pleasure today to welcome Dr. Yoram Hazoni to the podcast. Dr. Hazoni is the chairman of the Edmund Burke Foundation and president of the Herzl Institute in Jerusalem, Israel. He's a leading proponent of the national conservatism movement. His previous book, The Virtue of Nationalism, won the Intercollegiate Studies Institute Conservative Book of the Year Award in 2019. Uh, he's written prolifically on many questions, both in book form, articles, and op-eds in different publications around the world. He's a graduate of Princeton with a BA from there and a PhD from Rutgers University. He lives in Jerusalem with his wife and children, and he also has three grandchildren. Yoram, welcome to the program. Thank you, Sam. It's a pleasure to see you. Good to see you again as well. So I start most of these discussions of books by asking a question that to everyone who comes on these program, this program. And the basic question is, it's an obvious one. So tell me why you decided to write this book, this book being Conservatism, A Rediscovery, published by Regnery Gateway. I'm wondering why you just decided to write this particular book at this particular time. Well, 2020 was, um, uh, I, th I think, a watershed, uh, watershed year in the, in the history of uh, the United States and, and, in fact, all Western nations. Uh, I, I think that the, uh, we can describe the post-World -war, post War II period as having been uh, dominant, dominated by liberal ideas. You can say that liberal hegemony the hegemony of liberal ideas lasted more or less from the 1960s up until the year 2020. And 2020 is, uh, is, uh, is the year in which a, uh, a, a quite different ideology, uh, woke neo-Marxism, 
made an astonishingly successful push to uh, to place leading liberal institutions uh, across the United States and Britain and in other countries under its thumb with a an astonishing degree of success. And at this point, I think that the uh, the assumption that uh, that liberal ideas, ideas that are are focused on uh, individual liberty and equality, um, are uh, no long no longer hegemonic. They st- certainly still a great many people uh, believe in them and are fighting for them. But uh, the condition of of uh, a single you know, kind of a single over, overarching structure to uh, to public life, or a single kind of comprehensive public philosophy, I think, is ended. And um, at 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 this point, since I'm I, I'm I'm no great admirer of uh, of uh, the the uh, new possible uh, worldview. Uh, the the uh, the the neo-Marxist worldview, and since I, I I don't believe that liberalism by itself has the resources to be able to defend itself or to recapture what has been lost, this is a moment where it's extremely important for people to focus on the kinds of questions that uh, uh, conservatives ask, which are questions uh, uh, such as. Uh, uh, what do you actually need to do to be able to conserve anything and transmit anything, um, wh- whether it's uh, ideas or behaviors or institutions from one generation to the next? If something's going to be saved from this con- conflagration, uh, it- it's going to be saved using conservative tools, not liberal ones. And uh, and so uh, to 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 make that case at this moment, I think. I thought was a, a a worthwhile use of my time, and I think it, reading it could also be a worthwhile use of the reader's time at this moment. Well, you use the phrase liberalism, and you spoke about liberal hegemony. The word liberalism, I've always thought, is it's one of these words in which many people invest quite different meanings. So someone like, let's say, John Rawls, for example, certainly would describe himself as a liberal. Another person such as, I guess, uh, F.A. Hayek certainly described himself as a liberal. Yet they had very different views on all sorts of things, particularly questions of um, the relative balance of liberty and equality in society and even what they meant by those things. So I was wondering if you could give us a sense of what you mean when you use this phrase liberalism, whether it's liberal tools or liberal institutions or liberal ideas, what do you have in mind? Well, in, in, in the book, I describe um, what, what I call the Enlightenment liberal paradigm. Uh, and this is, this is a, a fundamental view, a, a way of understanding politics that um, uh, I studied in uh, high school, growing up in New Jersey, and then studied as an undergraduate at Princeton, and then once again for my doctorate in political theory at Rutgers. This is kind of the uh, the, uh, the the main framework that people use for thinking about politics in democratic countries, and it uh, begins with the assumption that people are by nature uh, free and equal, and uh, that uh, uh, obligations are in general uh, taken upon. 
assumed by the individual on the basis of consent, and that um, that reasoning individuals will be able to uh, to figure out that since since human beings are by nature free and equal, they the the the, the only legitimate purpose of government is uh, doing those things that are necessary in order to pr protect those uh, that freedom and that equality, and. Uh, that's that's a worldview that um, uh, that uh, you you mentioned Rawls and Hayek, uh, both of them broadly do accept accept that worldview. I mean, the, there's a very interesting to discussion to be had about uh, uh, about how Hayek, who, who is epistemologically an empiricist, actually succeeds in ending up in that place. But setting that aside, I think I think that it's correct to say that uh, uh, that. The, uh, the 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 public culture, the public philosophy of that kind of liberalism um, uh, has in fact been been dominate, dominant in most Western countries and that the debates between um, you know uh, people who put put a greater emphasis on freedom and people put a greater emphasis on equality, those debates are are to a certain degree inside the family. A conservative, uh, is not inside that family. Conservatives uh, cer certainly see uh, uh, individual liberty and, and equality before the law as crucial uh, crucial purposes of, of government and cr crucial institutions in our political culture. But but a conservative begins from a different place. Conservatives begin with uh, with the question of what would be necessary in order for a given society, for any society, to be able to uh, strengthen itself and transmit itself over over many generations? And when you begin by asking that question, uh, you you immediately hit a different a different set of basic assumptions about what politics is about. Uh, you you have to take a, a look at uh, what it is that makes. Uh, that holds human beings together, that uh, holds families and societies together. Uh, so you you have to speak in terms of things like uh, uh, co uh, social cohesion. Co social cohesion is, uh, is 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 something that takes place in societies where uh, uh, where um, uh, honor is given uh, between the different groups within the society. Honor builds mutual loyalty and makes the society resilient. And, uh, and those kinds of considerations of uh, who and what is to be honored and uh, how does that affect the capacity of the society to hold together rather than disintegrating, uh, those are subjects that are almost entirely absent from political education, at least the political education that, that I received uh, in the United States. And um, in fact, in, in general, most people don't speak about these things anymore. So there, there's actually a, a cop competition between that liberal framework and the conservative framework, which I call the conservative paradigm for the, uh, the, the, the space within the minds of the people who are thinking about politics. And my argument is that as long as it is the liberal paradigm that you, th that you mostly spend your time thinking about, uh, then you are blind to and in general unable to do those uh, things that are necessary in order for a country like the United States to survive. And at this at this moment, I 
I, I think it couldn't be more evident that the, the chain of transmission has been broken and the United States and Britain are undergoing kind of a, an ongoing cultural revolution. And, uh, and, and we, we have to let the liberal paradigm uh, go a bit and open our minds to a different way of thinking of things if we're going to save ourselves. So chapter three is where you introduce this idea of the conservative paradigm. And you say a paradigm consists of fundamental concepts and the principles by which these concepts are related to one another. A well-framed paradigm, you go on to say, will capture the most consequential features of the domain being studied, whereas a poorly framed one will let crucial elements slip away unnoticed. And then you say, but whether well-framed or not, a paradigm always involves a reduction or simplification of the material. There is always something that has been left out. So on that basis, here's a a common critique that I've heard of, of your book and the way that you address some of these issues, not just in terms of this particular book, but also the virtues of nationalism, which was your the one in which you won a Conservative Book of the Year Award for back in 2019. And the criticism is this, that when you use phrases like conservatism, liberalism, nationalism, that you're skating over important distinctions that exist between different types of conservatives, different types of liberals, different types of nationalists. And if that is the case, if that is the case that these differences are being somewhat blurred, um, does this run this this method run the risk of effectively oversimplifying the complexity of some of these matters? Because you and I both know people who describe themselves as liberals or conservatives who actually have very, very different views on all sorts of different subjects. So I'm wondering here, I guess it's a methodological question. Does the paradigm that you're building tend to exclude some of these complexities that are not not necessarily just marginal, but often very fundamental to differences that, say, a group of conservatives may have among themselves? Whether it's something like the role, the, the, the degree to which some conservatives describe themselves, say, as fundamentally skeptics. And others say, no, I'm a conservative because I'm a fundamentally a religious person. So could you say something about this issue? Well, I, I think those are two different questions. I mean, in, in terms of um, in terms of methodology, the, the, the question is uh, uh, very apt and very well, uh, you know, it's definitely something that we need to think about. I um, uh, it, it's unfortunate that uh, simplicity uh, that the way the human mind works is 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 that we're able to understand things best um, where uh, where the 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 array of concepts and and um, and principles that we're using are, are are few and simple, and the 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 more you multiply uh, concepts and uh, the more you multiply concepts and principles, the more difficult it becomes to understand anything. You know, so um, historians. Uh, tend very much uh, to uh, towards nuance in order to make their uh, their stories um, extremely precise, but uh, but it's often very difficult to understand 
you know, what history is, uh, is uh, urging upon us from a good history book. And uh, the, the, you know, the fields like political theory and, and, and philosophy um, seek, seek a much greater simplicity in order that we be able to, to understand. And uh, that's, um, uh, in fact, precisely the the reason that uh, liberalism, as I've defined it, Enlightenment liberalism, has been so successful, is that it's such an extraordinarily simple um, a system of ideas. I mean, basically, you have uh, freedom, equality, consent, and reason, and the the entire theory is is uh, is built out of those. You you can add rights if you like, but but. Basically, my argument is that is that liberalism blinds us to so very much because of the fact that it's so simple. Its simplicity is precisely what blinds us. We think that we understand uh, that uh, that that uh, invading Afghanistan can uh, can um, uh, lead to liberal democracy in Afghanistan. We and we don't understand. Uh, the the capacity for for uh, cohesion of a society that is traditional and is uh, fighting against these concepts, and it's the the simplicity of our views that makes it of liberal views. I mean that that uh, that makes policy building based on it so catastrophic. So that that argument will surely apply to uh, to uh, to my books as well, since since. My goal is to compete with liberalism by also offering a uh, a, a simple, powerful theory. Uh, although, um, if you read that chapter three, you'll see that uh, that um, my entire argument is based on a reduction in simplicity. That uh, what I've done is I've uh, taken seven or eight different um, concepts. Uh, that most of which we've we, we've touched on already: uh, co- cohesion and dissolution, hierarchy, uh, honor, um, the the, uh, uh, the 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 idea of a traditional institution, the idea of uh, the nation. All of these are ideas that are left out of uh, the liberal framework and uh, and are included in this broader conservative framework. That's why I think it's a better theory. But the you know the claim that I'm leaving things things out is uh, uh, certainly admissible and probably true. Well, here's another thing I'd like to just working on what you just said. Um, you've mentioned reason and you've mentioned tradition a number of times, and tradition is obviously something that conservatives of all stripes tend to be interested in and and attached to to varying degrees and in varying ways, but nonetheless tradition in the sense of this transmission of knowledge over time through customs, through habits, and you and I would probably say ultimately through religion is is central to the the whole way that a conservative thinks about the world. And you associate liberalism in your book with what you call on many occasions enlightened rationalism, which I I presume you're really talking here about the enlightenment movements that emerged in the 18th century or towards the end of the 17th century and then had a very powerful impact upon the European and Western mind in the 18th century across traditions, across countries, across nations. Um, 
so that brings me to the person of Edmund Burke, who obviously is a person that is a, a major reference point for conservatives and a good number of classical liberals, for that matter, as well. So Burke is a figure that is going to figure significantly in any discussion about conservatism and contemporary liberalism. He's a man that takes tradition very seriously. This is probably most evident in his reflections on the revolution in France. Uh, but is there a risk with your, with your book that you downplay the attention that people like Burke gave to reason? And by reason, I don't here mean empiricism. I'm really talking about natural law and this tradition of natural law thinking that's been so integral to the history of the West. So I'm guessing I'm pointing to this broad attention between tradition on the one hand and reason on the other. And your book tends to, I think, posit conservatism as the repository of tradition and liberalism as the repository of reason, or at least a particular type of reason. So... Does that actually work out, though? Is it the case that these things are necessarily intention, or is it the case that conservatism tries to bring these things together? I think there are two different um, ways of thinking about nat natural law. There's a, a rationalist way of thinking about natural law, and there's an empiricist way of natural law. Um, the rationalist says... Uh, and, and in this rationalist, natural lawyers are actually quite similar to rationalist liberals. The rationalist says um, there, are thing, there, there are things that are uh, immutable and unchanging about, uh, 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 about nature. These things are more or less fully accessible to, to, to human reason. That means that people who are reasoning properly in every time and place can come to the same conclusions uh, because uh, because the, the the natural law itself does not vary, and the capacity of reason does not vary, and uh, therefore the conclusions can simply stand in a fixed way uh, throughout all e all eternity. Um, an empiricist also may believe, I think, often does. You know, as as the the the, the Hebrew Bible does, for example, empiricist thought um, does believe that there is that there are uh, natural laws, meaning um, laws that derive from you know the nature of human beings and the, the the nature of human societies, and that hold good in all times and places. But the the empiricist is extremely skeptical about our capacity to. Uh, to reach any kind of final conclusion about the content of those laws. And the reason for this is that empiricists look at uh, the history of reasoning and, and uh, the, the, the examples of uh, uh, Burke's great teacher, John Selden, or Burke himself um, are, are very good examples of this. Empiric empiricists look at, at, at human history and they say, when and where has there actually been uh, agreement among people who uh, exercise reason, and the answer that they give is virtually never. That uh, individual uh, societies disagree with one another, and traditions disagree with one another, and for that matter, even individuals uh, within a certain society constantly disagree about the most fundamental things. And all we need to do is compare um, 
the views of uh, the, the, the cat, Catholic natural lawyers who claim to be exercising universal reason uh, with the views of, um, of uh, enlightenment liberals who also claim to be exercising human, universal reason. And uh, you immediately see and, and compare both of them to the, to the views of uh, Marxist theoreticians who also claim to be exercising universal reason. You'll see that all three of these schools come to completely different conclusions all of them exercising uh, quite good reason in many cases, uh, but 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 the, but they don't reach conclusions. So I mean, they don't reach a single conclusion. Reason is incapable of putting that kind of argument to an end, according to empiricists, and conservatives are empiricists, and so conservatives are in fact uh, a little bit more skeptical about reason. You know, we like reason as much as anybody else does. We we do our best to use reason in order to reach the, the, the best possible conclusions. But I think that conservatives are, are more humble and more skeptical about the uh, capacity of any particular uh, um, person or society or culture to, uh, to grasp uh, ultimate truths that are binding on everyone else just because we're not very good at this. Uh, so when you're speaking about somebody like Burke, um, it's certainly true that he uh, uh, that he, like many other conservatives, you know, of, of his generation uh, is um, uh, agrees that there's such a natural uh, such a thing as natural law. Um, uh, so, so does Selden. So, so, so do the other thinkers in, in this conserv- Anglo-American conservative tradition. But the question is, what do they do with it? The question is whether they uh, believe that you can simply exercise reason and deduce directly from natural law uh, things that are uh, uh, a, a kind of a constitution for the way that society uh, ought to be. And Burke's answer to this is uh, absolutely no, that the way that we as a society approach an understanding of uh, what nature requires is through long, what he calls long experience the experience of many generations and centuries. He definitely believes that the, uh, that the British constitution um, is the best constitution that has ever been uh, established among, among nations. And, and uh, in, in, uh, in, in this, he's, uh, he's, uh, uh, um, he, he's in agreement with John Adams, who in 1787, uh, publishes the first volume of his three-volume work on the the constitutions uh, of uh, uh, of the United States, and uh, Adams likewise makes this argument. He says the British Constitution is the best that there has ever been. He surveys constitutions throughout human history, every constitution that he can find, in order to uh, make the argument historically. Uh, that the British Constitution is the best, and what's good about the American constitutions in John Adams' view is that they are so close to the British Constitution. So they, the, all of these thinkers um, certainly believe that that there is such a thing as human nature, there is such a thing as the nature of human societies, and a constitution is best when it reflects that nature. But they don't believe that that nature can be uh, derived from uh, uh, self-evident, uh, self-evident principles, uh, uh, whether self-evident principles of reason or, or universally evident uh, dictates of, 
uh, of, of experience. They, they don't believe that that can be done. And they don't believe that you can reduce, uh, that you can deduce from those self-evident principles uh, to the constitution that would be best. So it's a, it's, it's simply a mistake. I think that um, many, many, many very good and fine thinkers make this mistake today to think that every time somebody talks about nature uh, in the conservative tradition, what he's talking about is a, uh, a, a nature that is uh, simply knowable to everyone and that can be the foundation from which you deduce uh, legal and moral conclusions. Uh, th that Burke does not believe, and, and he ex says explicitly that he doesn't accept that. You and I one day are going to have to sit down and have a fun conversation about natural law at some point, I suspect, in the future. But I I'd like to. I thought, I thought today was the day. <laughs> I was all ready for it today. Well, there's lots of things we could say about uh, natural law, and particularly its relationship to constitutionalism and the way that these things relate to each other, as well as what I would argue is a fair amount of, of agreement across cultures about different points. But I'd like to move on, and we've been talking a lot about history, right? We've been talking about the past. We've been talking about different theories. I'd like to move now to something, to, to an area of your book where you directly engage the American conservatism that emerged after the 1950s particularly with people like Frank Meyer and others. And it's fair to say, I think, that you're skeptical of the fusionist project. You're skeptical about its coherence. You tend to be more skeptical about the, the respective weight given to virtue and liberty in the, the fusionist experiment. And, you know, I, th I actually think that's, that's one of the, the things that you really do narrow in on. And I think it's fair to say that the fusionist project uh, is in some respects a response to a particular point in time rather than something that's been worked out on a deep theoretical level. I tend to agree with you about, about that. Um, but at the same time, uh, conservatism, like all sorts of other different political movements, need to be reacting to what's going on around them. And in the 1950s, it's fair to say that people who were self-consciously conservative, self-consciously, or in some cases, some consciously classical liberal, or even some cases, libertarian, which is a whole different category, these people were very much alone, they needed to form alliances with each other, etc. So my point, I guess, I'm looking at in this regard is, is this. When it comes to fusionism, can you describe what's your basic critique of it as a theory? And why do you think, as you seem to imply in uh, various parts of the book, that American conservatism needs to move beyond the shadow of people like Frank Meyer, who are very much associated with the fusionist project. I think I should start by, by emphasizing that, that, um, uh, that William Buckley's uh, uh, Cold War conservatism, uh, which by, by the mid-1960s was being called fusionism, mm -hmm. um, it, 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 it was important and it achieved extremely important things. I mean, the, it, it was uh, from the start an alliance of liberals and conservatives. Um, uh, 
liberals like Frank Meyer, who uh, I, I think, frankly, detested the conservatism of you know a traditional conservative like uh, like Russell Kirk. I mean, Frank Meyer's uh, book in, uh, uh, on the subject is um, uh, from 1962. Is I mean, it's overwhelmingly an attack on Edmund Burke and on and on Russell Kirk. It, it, very little of it is an attack on socialism. It's almost all an attack on on uh, on conservatism. Um, so. Look, putting putting those two characters and those two uh, different worldviews, which Kirk said is you know it's like putting it's like attempting a fusion between fire and ice um, in one movement, it would never have happened except that it was a, a a political necessity. And I agree with the political necessity. I mean, I think I think that that in a world that had been uh, swamped by uh, by socialism. Uh, including, you know, including the United States and 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 Britain and Europe, um, socialism and advancing socialism at the same at home and at the same time communism uh, uh, rampant abroad and expanding uh, under those conditions. Uh, I, I, you know, I I I, I, I simply think that 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 a, a conservative who is unwilling to sit with a liberal in an alliance would have been a fool. And uh, and 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 so it's historically very important that those liberals and conservatives sat together uh, as allies. Uh, that's what ultimately gave the uh, the the basis for the Reagan Thatcher uh, moment and for the the defeat of uh, Soviet communism abroad and for the rolling back of socialism for an entire generation uh, in American Britain and elsewhere. Um, so. That's what's good about fusionism. Uh, what's bad about fusionism uh, is that uh, that the particular form of the alliance, I think, was um, was mistaken. You know, it's easy for me to say that um, uh, with hindsight, uh, but it, but if we want to know why is it that this was an alliance of liberals and conservatives, yet by the time that Reagan and Thatcher had left the stage. Conservatism had been as thoroughly uprooted and defeated as communism. I think. I think if we want to understand how it can be that that the heirs to Reagan and Thatcher, who were in many respects um, traditionalists and nationalists, and 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 uh, believed in religion and not only in freedom, um, as as did many of the you know, of their associates and, and, and intellectuals who were writing at the time. How can it be that a movement like that, which, uh, which um, Irving Kristol, for example, described as being based on religion, nationalism, and economic growth, where of the three, religion is the most important, Kristol wrote. So how can a movement of that kind have immediately um, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, by the early 1990s, um, immediately given given birth to a world in which conservatism doesn't exist and to almost doesn't exist, and a movement um, that takes uh, liberal principles and insists on uh, creating a worldwide, universal liberal kind of an uh, an empire uh, 
the, the, the end of history and, and liberal internationalism as the purpose of the so-called conservative movement. I mean, there's no chance that Reagan or Thatcher would ever have supported any such thing. And yet it, it was the immediate consequence. And uh, so when we look back to try to understand how such a catastrophic failure uh, of fusionism could have uh, arisen, I think I, I think that when you go back and read the original documents, it's very clear that the, the the deal, the fusionist deal, is one in which liberalism is the public philosophy that conservatives support, and conservatism, re- religious traditionalism, uh, personal patriotism, and nationalism is is the private philosophy that uh, that uh, people that conservatives will support, and that. Uh, fusion of a public liberalism with a private conservatism uh, apparently doesn't work. I mean, we, we it was tried for two generations. It was uh, uh, successful on the liberal fronts and a c- complete failure on the conservative fronts. And so um, I think that uh, that today when we again face a, you know, not dissimilar conditions of of a a rapidly rising woke neo Marxism at home, and uh, and a uh, rapidly rising uh, Chinese authoritarianism abroad. Once again, we, we're in the same kind of condition where uh, conservatives are um, uh, are not strong enough, I I believe, to be able to take these things on alone without the help of anti-Marxist liberals. And anti-Marxist liberals after 2020 are are themselves a a small and and uh, rapid a, a, a small band of uh, uh, of individuals who are heavily under siege. I, I I do think we're going to have to work together, but I don't think the basis for working together can be fusionism, because the uh, what's what's missing in fusionism is any kind of an awareness that uh, that the transmission of uh, anything that we value from the past, I, I include uh, things like uh, God and Scripture, uh, and uh, a, a Christian or Jewish moral vision, uh, the honor given to uh, the Bible as the basis of our uh, our civilization. But I also include, you know, uh, pre- precious Anglo-American uh, uh, customs like the uh, uh, like freedom of speech and. Uh, and uh, uh, religious toleration, all of these things can continue and persist only under conditions in which there is a public conservatism, in which um, not only government, but but public institutions of all kinds are uh, involved in uh, explicitly and constantly giving honor uh, to uh, to traditional norms of different kinds, which uh, which which we need to, per, to to have persist if if we want to see uh, America or Britain or or the West in general survive the coming years. Well, here's a question that follows up, I think, naturally from that. I'm I'm not unsympathetic to that argument because I uh, when I hear claims about the need for law to be neutral or for government to be neutral regarding any number of moral questions, I always say there's no such thing. There's no such thing as neutrality of law. Law, by definition, uh, is concerned with questions of justice. Justice is not a neutral thing. 
uh, some of the, the things like freedom of speech and other such things that you mentioned, these are grounded upon certain value commitments and certain, a certain understanding of what's necessary if you're going to have people being able to pursue truth relatively freely, etc. But I suppose the question that naturally comes out from what you just said is, how does one do that? How does one establish a type of public conservatism of the type that you're describing one that, as you've said in a number of occasions throughout your book, where religion, particularly um, Judaism and Christianity, and I'm assuming you have a type of small orthodox versions of these things in mind, at least at some level. How does one do that in a country like, for example, the United States or Britain, for that matter, or most Western countries, for that matter, where religion per se, is becoming uh, more and more marginalized, both in public discourse, but also in terms of even people's private lives as well, right? And the way that they live their lives. We've had we've seen in the United States and other countries the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, as people who say they have no at- particular attachment to a particular form of religion, let alone a specific synagogue or church. So how does one do that? How does one, can, is it possible to establish the type of public conservatism you're talking about in a West in which religion has uh, either been marginalized or to a certain extent in some cases actually self-marginalized itself from these types of discussions? Well, th- this, is, this, is not, this is not a traditional um, American, certainly not, uh, not British uh, um, uh, condition the the elimination of uh, the, the separation of church and state is um, appears for the first time in uh, American constitutional uh, jurisprudence in 1947. That is, as I write in the book, it's it's a it is a, a reaction to uh, the horrors of the world wars, and um, the 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 reaction to to the to, to the racism of uh, of, of of the Nazis um, is you know it's a, it, it, it's certainly a, a very very good reason for Americans to have said things like look um, we just sacrificed half a million lives uh, in order to defeat Nazi racism and we can't we, we can't conscience the continuation of Jim Crow and the persecution of the black minority in the in in, in the American South I, I'm extremely sympathetic to that argument. Um, but the um, uh, but the constitutional revolution of the that began in the 1940s and reached its sort of it, it, its culmination in the 1960s in in America was not only about the elimination of discrimination between blacks and whites. It one of its central planks was driving uh, driving religion out of the public sphere, beginning in the public schools. And and then ultimately simply out of public life, uh, in, in in general, the the uh, the banning of prayer and uh, uh, the teaching of religion uh, and the Bible was was a uh, a crucial turning point uh, that um, transformed America from a Christian democracy, or what uh, FDR had called a God fearing democracy. Into this uh, uh, this new experiment of liberal democracy, where uh, uh, liberalism replaces Christianity as the public culture of uh, of the United States, and that's imposed top down by the American Supreme Court. Although 
uh, Congress also had quite a bit to do with it. Um, and uh, I, I think that the United States, now that liberalism, it, it, hegemonic liberalism has collapsed, I think a great many people should be open to, uh, to a couple of things. One of them is a return to, uh, 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 to democracy and federalism on these issues. That, that is, the, the American Supreme Court, beginning in the late 1940s, decided to expropriate very, very large uh, areas uh, having to do with uh, religion, family, society, uh, to take all of these issues away from the states and to, uh, to impose a liberal order uh, from Washington. This should be regarded as unconstitutional, meaning it, 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 that, the, that Americans should regard this as, a, as an abuse of the American Constitution and, and, and a great, great mistake. And at this point, if, um, if uh, conservatives uh, can understand clearly that this is what has happened, then I assume that what they will want to do is to permit um, uh, to, to uh, repeal the nationwide imposition of separation of church and state and to permit different states to experiment with, uh, with uh, uh, different, different kinds of uh, 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 legal structures with respect to Christianity and public religion. I, I agree with you that there are many places in the United States that will not, uh, that, that, that will not be interested in this kind of thing, but there are many states uh, and regions in America where there's still a Christian majority and where people are extremely concerned. And, and by the way, not only Christians, I mean, or, or Orthodox Jews, and I, I think many other traditionalists as well, are extremely concerned about the, uh, uh, the, the, the transition that we're seeing to a kind of neo-Marxist cultural revolution as the official ideology of the United States. And the, the best way to fight it is by resuscitating um, uh, uh, biblical traditions and, and Christian and the Christian moral vision. In you know, in my view, I think think it, it would be best to uh, to have carve outs and accommodations, um, uh, as I think most Americans would support for people who are not Christian, you know, like myself. But um, but I think that the general direction should be um, for states to fight the. Uh, the the new public religion of uh, woke neo Marxism with the old public religion of a a biblically based uh, Christian public life and uh, how exactly that looks will be uh, a series of experiments different different states you know and, and and different countries in Europe are going to try different things and uh, some of them will work and some of them won't work and we'll get to see. Uh, what is successful, but the, the 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 important thing is to achieve a restoration at this point, because uh, the 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 experiment of of a strictly purely liberal democracy uh, has 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 failed. It's 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 collapsed into something horrible, and uh, we're going to have to uh, resuscitate that FDR idea of a God fearing of God fearing democracy. Uh, and uh, and see what that looks like and how well that stacks up. I uh, suspect that the <clears throat> that the Dobbs case, if it turns out the way that I suspect it's going to turn out in the Supreme Court, we may see some of that happening. What you've just described happening with a number of laws 
regarding surrounding human life and other such questions uh, being very different in different states throughout the United States. Um, but let's turn towards the end now, and I'd like to talk about Chapter 9 of your book, which is Some Notes on Living a Conservative Life. Now, this is interesting because uh, much of your work in this book is presenting a theory, presenting what you think a conservative paradigm is, and laying it out and putting it opposition to other forms of paradigms, liberalism, etc. So I'd like to ask, first of all, why did you decide to end the book on this very personal note? And you talk about yourself, your wife, Julie, your courtship, um, the way that you basically developed what might be called a conservative outlook and conservative lifestyle, a praxis of conservatism, so to speak, in the context of a society and a culture which was anything but any of those things. So I'd like to get a sense from you of why you decided to end the book this way. And secondly, to say something about the role of religion in this living a conservative life as you presented at the end of the book. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll begin with the point about uh, religion, which if I, if I haven't emphasized that enough, I, 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 I'm, I'm sorry. The uh, Every society has a, a public philosophy or a public religion. It may be you know, spelled out explicitly, much of it is often very, very, very much implicit. But you know, an outsider coming into any society um, can can uh, can study it and identify. You know, what is the basic religious or philosophical framework on which things are based? And the the main traditional religions in uh, Western countries which are d- different forms of Christianity and, uh, of, of course, also Judaism, um, for the last couple of thousand years, those offer something that uh, a, a way of life and a way of transmitting uh, inherited ideas and behaviors and institutions from, from generation to generation, um, which can, that simply cannot be compared to anything else that that. Americans or, or Brits or Europeans have at their disposal. Religion is the, um, in our experience, uh, the one thing that we know uh, is capable of transmitting itself uh, over over centuries and, in fact, thousands of years. So um, when when you know we, we talk about a restoration of of uh, traditions. Um, we also have to focus not just on, you know, sort of the kind of these abstract, you know, like uh, um, what should the Supreme Court think and what should the Supreme Court rule? Those are very, very abstract issues. And in uh, and the real problem in the West, as you, you know, you suggested when you were uh, when you alluded to the rise of the nuns is the real problem in the West is not so much the, you know, the public culture, which is terrible as it is the uh, the fact that young people uh, or older people who are who want to return to a conservative life let's say that you want uh, you've, you you feel that you need or want a, uh, a a life of conservation and transmission you want to be able to 
um, to marry, to raise up children, to stay married, to teach your children things that they will then uh, to some, you know, to some significant degree, uh, honor and perpetuate. I mean, the parents can't actually control what their what their children's children are going to end up thinking and doing. That's a complete myth. But but uh, the if um, someone wants these things, wants to be able to enter into a traditional conservative life to become a, tra- a conservative person, well, there's no way to do that from books. Books can't teach you how to live. The only way you can learn how to live is by is from other people who live a certain way. And um, and I, you know, many, many people ask me now, you know, how, how could I possibly be part of a Christian or a, an Orthodox Christian or an Orthodox Jewish uh, life? I don't, you know, I wasn't raised to believe these things. My parents didn't believe these things. My, you know, they may even, my parents may even have despised these things. And, and so I have nothing. I have no traditions that have been handed down. What should I do? It, it seems impossible. And this is a very poignant question. It's pointed. It's right. It's, a, it, it's an exact snapshot of, of, of where many, many, I mean, many millions of young people are right now. The, um, uh, the young women, uh, the, the young men that Jordan Peterson uh, writes about, um, or the young women that Abigail Schreier writes about, these are these are um, young men and women who have inherited um, almost nothing, and they know it. And the 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 question is, um, must they simply fall prey to you know to these these uh, uh, calls for uh, for uh, dictatorship? Coming by all sorts of coming at us from by all sorts of, from all sorts of characters on, on the political right, or to the the calls for uh, to to spend your life in in sexual exploration um, coming at us from the left. I think the answer is no. They don't have to do that. And since my wife and I, um, since Julie and I actually. Um, uh, returned from uh, a, a, a liberal life w- without, without a great deal of uh, the cultural inheritance that, uh, that we wanted for our children. Uh, we uh, returned to uh, Orthodox Jewish practice. We returned to, uh, a, uh, to a, a, an, an Orthodox family life, an Orthodox congregational life, and uh, an orthodox education for our children. This is none of this is easy to do, but I included in the book because I wanted people to see that it is possible. That it's simply somewhat a, a thing, although it's difficult to do. It's a thing that a young man or a young woman or even older people, you know, an older couple whose children you know went away to college and never came back, and and uh, all. all all people can um, become a part and play a role in the chain of transmission of uh, of the great heritage from older generations to next generations. But it requires, at, at this point in time, what it requires is uh, finding an Orthodox congregation, um, as we did, uh, approaching it from a uh, standpoint of humility, 
uh, approaching an Orthodox congregation from a standpoint of saying, um, we see that you are handing down the tradition. We come here to learn how, how to transmit and conserve things ourselves. Uh, that, that, is, that is the way that individuals and families uh, can, can both save themselves um, from, uh, from dissolution, from this dissolute liberal lifestyle. They can save themselves. They can save their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren by doing this. And they can contribute to the, uh, to the salvation of uh, their, their nation, you know, so I, I, I think that this is the, there's nothing more desired, necessary and admirable at this moment than for uh, uh, for people to to admit that things have gone wrong and that they can do something about it themselves with their own hands by adopting a conservative life and becoming conservative people. So you end the last uh, four lines of your book in the conclusion. Uh, Conservatism begins at home. I think that's a good place to uh, conclude this podcast. Yoram Hazoni, thank you very much for joining us. It's been great to talk with you. Uh, For those of you who are interested, Yoram Hazoni, again, is the chairman of the Edmund Burke Foundation and president of the Herzl Institute. Uh, His previous book, The Virtue of Nationalism, won the Intercollegiate Studies Conservative Book of the Year Award in 2011. And we've been discussing today his newly released book, Conservatism, a rediscovery published by Regnery Gateway and available from all good bookshops and, of course, on places like Amazon.com. Yoram, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Sam. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Zsa. Zsa.